we return to our series on Joshua, picking up in Joshua 7, with something of a difficult story. It's certainly a somber one. And so let us begin with prayer. Gracious Lord, open our eyes that we might see the wonderful truth in your word. Open our hearts that we might receive this truth and might be transformed in meditating upon your word. Amen. The story is relatively straightforward. After the victory at Jericho, Joshua sends two spies up to Ai. Ai is a small town, but it's in a strategic location located along the main road into one of the main roads into the central hill country from Jericho. Joshua sends up spies just as he had earlier sent spies to Jericho. The spies return and say, Ai is a small town only send three units. Don't bother sending up the whole army. It's a bit like uh, playing against a small school and playing the second string players in a football team. Saying, uh, give, give the second string players a chance. Give one of your under lieutenants a chance to lead the army. Well, this sounds good to Joshua, so he sends up three units, and yet it is a disaster for Israel. Instead of defeating this small town, Israel loses a dozen men from each unit and they're pursued for several miles by the army of Ai. Now we see a reversal at the uh, end of this battle. Whereas previously we've been told several times that the Canaanite kings' hearts melted and that they were like water before the Israelites, now it is Israel whose hearts have melted and have become like water. It's a total reversal. Well, how does Joshua respond to this situation? Joshua responds with lament. He's on his face grieving for the loss of his people until the evening. And then at the evening, he prays after fasting all day. He asks God, why have you allowed this disaster to fall on your people? Wouldn't it have been better for us to stay on the other side of the Jordan River? What will happen to God's great name if God's people are cut off? Notice Joshua's prayer is based on a basic principle, that there is a connection between God's people and God's name, that is, his reputation. There is a connection between God's people and his reputation. Most people know about God as he is represented by his people. That Joshua laments is not wrong. It's in line with laments elsewhere in the Bible, laments like in the Psalms, like we've used in our worship already this morning. But his lament is based on a faulty assumption, as we see in God's response in verse 10. God says, get up. The problem is not that you have crossed over the Jordan River, but the problem is that Israel has broken my covenant. The problem is, as God says in verse 11 pointedly, Israel has sin. And God offers a short definition of sin. He says, they have transgressed my covenant. There's actually a play on words here in Hebrew. Joshua says, oh, that we had never crossed the Jordan River in verse 7. And God responds, no, the problem is Israel has crossed my covenant. It's the same verb in both cases. See, Joshua is right. There's a connection between God's people and God's name. But the application of this principle is that God will not tolerate high-handed sin amongst his people because it reflects on God's own name. 
This morning, I want to look at four truths that this passage teaches us about sin, focusing on a few key verses. The four truths are simply this. Sin starts with us. Sin grows. Sin brings trouble on others. So put sin to death. The first truth is that sin starts with us. Sin starts with us. Look at Achan's confession in verse 21. He says, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. See, they are hidden inside my tent. Achan's sin starts by seeing something. Achan's with the other Israelites. They're working their way through Jericho, clearing different houses. And remember, everything in Jericho was to be devoted to the Lord. All the spoils were to be devoted to the Lord. And it's interesting to note that this temptation for Achan begins by noticing a beautiful cloak of Shinar. Shinar is a term, another term for Mesopotamia. So he's noticing fine clothes from the big city. It's like he's going through the building and he notices a fancy Armani suit. Well, this is not yet sin. Noticing that something is desirable is not in and of itself sinful. The question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with this once we notice it? Instead of repenting and turning away, Achan begins to desire or covet the cloak. He thinks no one is watching and he can get away with it thinks I could slip that cloak under my armor and no one would ever know. Maybe you saw a news story this last week about a firefighter in Indiana who was checking his bank account to see if the coronavirus stimulus money had been deposited. And he discovered that the government had accidentally deposited $8.2 million in his account. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought would at least cross my mind. Maybe I can withdraw the money and use it before anyone notices. No one's watching. Well, Achan notices the cloak, and this leads to coveting. And this coveting leads to taking. Achan initially notices merely the cloak, but he ends up taking silver and gold as well. A gold bar that weighs about 20 ounces, worth in our money about $35,000 and silver about 80 ounces weighing, uh, that would cost about $1,500, would be worth $1,500. So he's stealing about $40,000 worth of silver and gold as well as this cloak. As long as he's gonna steal something, he might as well steal some more. Now this pattern should sound familiar to us. After all, it gets repeated in our lives daily. Sin starts with us. We notice something. Maybe an extra pallet of wood or some boxes of nails at a job site that no one will miss. Maybe we notice an attractive coworker. Then we are faced with a decision. Do we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Or do we toy with the idea in our head? No one is watching. No one will ever know if I take a few boxes of nails or flirt with my coworker. And if we let it, noticing something quickly becomes sinful desiring, coveting. And then sinful desires give birth to sinful actions. And like Achan, we end up doing more than we ever intended. We take the cloak and the silver and gold along with it. Sin starts with us. But then there's a second truth. Sin grows. 
sin grows. We've seen this process from Achan's point of view, of, from seeing to taking the cloak. But now look again at verse 11. From God's point of view, he says, Israel has transgressed my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Notice how one sin grows. Not only did Achan take something that wasn't his, but by doing so, he was also breaking God's covenant. This one action is more than one sin. Then Achan has to lie and deceive to cover up what he has done. When we're wrestling with sin and temptation, we like to tell ourselves it's just one little sin. It's just one thing. But as God tells Joshua, this is never the case. One simple action, taking the robe, is not only stealing, it's breaking God's law. It's lying, it's hiding, it's being deceitful. In fact, we lie to ourselves when we say it's just one website I shouldn't look at. It's just one more drink than I should have. Or it's just cheating on my taxes, everyone does it. From God's point of view, it's also breaking God's law. Perhaps breaking our covenant with our spouse. It's failing in our duties in the church. It generally leads to deception, lying, covering up what we've done. Although God knows what has happened from the start, and he tells Joshua in verses 11 and following, he doesn't tell Joshua from the start who has taken the thing. He doesn't tell Joshua Achan has done this. Instead, he tells Joshua in verse 13 to instruct the people to consecrate themselves, to prepare themselves for the next day. For there are devoted things in your midst, and this is why Israel was defeated. Achan, in fact, here is being given a chance to come forward and confess. All Israel is told, prepare yourselves, for something has been stolen, and it will be found out tomorrow. And all night, no doubt, Achan is wrestling with, should I confess? And the realization that his sin is the reason Israel lost the battle with Ai. But the next day comes, and Achan has decided to try and bluff God. As his tribe is taken, and then his clan, and then his family, he still doesn't come forward. Somehow he thinks maybe he will get away with it. Achan disbelieves Numbers 32.23. If you sin against the Lord, be sure that your sin will find you out. Although Achan has seen God stop the Jordan River and knock down the walls of Jericho just in the last couple weeks, somehow he thinks that God's word will fail and that his sin will not find him out. Surely Achan believes God exists, but he's a practical atheist. He disbelieves and denies God's power and knowledge by his actions. Achan's sin grows. We see a third truth in this passage, though. Sin brings trouble on others. Sin brings trouble on others. This truth runs throughout this passage, and we see it especially clearly in verses 12 and 13. God tells Joshua that Israel cannot stand before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. And in verse 25, Joshua asks Achan, Why did you bring this trouble on us? As modern people, we're totally individualistic. We think that we stand apart from others, 
and what we do in our private lives has no bearing on anyone else and is no one else's business. But Achan's sin brings trouble on others. Verse 1 tells us, not that Achan broke faith, but that the people of Israel broke faith because Achan took some of the devoted things. In Achan's sin, all Israel sinned. We are part of a larger community, and our sin affects our community. And we see one reason why in verse 12. God says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. I will be with you no more unless you deal with the sin that is going on in your midst. Achan may be the one that violated the covenant, but God's refusal to be with the people affects the whole community. This is why church discipline is so important. Reflecting on this passage, Dale Ralph Davis comments that the apparent absence of God in various segments of the church today may be due to our unwillingness to urge uh, to purge evil from our midst by the costly exercise of church discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Paul warns that sexual immorality within the Corinthian church is like leaven that works its way through a whole lump of bread dough. He warns the church not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is, anyone who claims to be a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Just as Achan is cut off from the people of God, so are those who practice these things. Notice here in Paul's words that there's two temptations faced by churches. Some churches are keenly aware of the social injustices that follow from greed, like price gouging, overcharging for rent, and the like. But often those very same churches are willing to tolerate all sorts of sexual immorality. On the other hand, conservative churches that regularly preach against lax contemporary sexual mores rarely address greed. Paul says both kinds of sins are problematic and must not be tolerated in the church. Of course, the mode of church discipline has changed. Thankfully, we don't have to put someone out of the community the way Israel put out Achan but the necessity of discipline has not. Achan's sin brings trouble on the whole Israelite community, leading to the death of 36 soldiers. But we see most clearly that Achan's sin brings trouble on his family. Can you imagine the moment when Achan's extended family is identified as the guilty party and he realizes, I'm not going to get away with it. And he looks at his wife and his children and realizes that he has brought a death sentence on them. Friends, this should scare you. Sin is nothing to play around with. You can bring death on your family. Especially as modern individualists, this seems totally unfair. Why does Achan's family suffer for Achan's sin? In part, we can point out that this is simply a sociological truth. The family of someone addicted to drugs or gambling or alcohol suffers for their sins. But we see here as well a basic theological truth. God works with families. God made a covenant with Abraham and his family, his descendants. God delivers Rahab in chapter Joshua 2 
and her entire family. But the flip side of this same truth is that Achan and his family are punished for his sin. In Reformed theological language, we would say Achan is the federal head of his family. Notice two things. First, that Achan's family is punished alongside him does not mean that Achan's wife and kids, or even Achan himself for that matter, are eternally damned. They each stand before God's just judgment. And the Bible tells us throughout that God's judgment is just. And so we trust that his eternal judgment for each of these will be just, we'll treat them as individuals. Second, this principle seems unfair that we can be judged in a representative until we realize that it's the very basis for our hope as Christians. For Achan's sin, Achan was taken with his family outside the camp, drug outside the camp and put to death. But for our sin, Jesus was taken outside the city and he was put to death. Achan was punished for violating God's covenant. Jesus fulfilled God's covenant by being punished for our violations. We have the right to stand before God by saying, I belong to Jesus' tribe. He is my head. He is my representative. I am in his family, and I am judged together with him. Even if we are found in Jesus, even if he is our federal head, we are still faced with this basic question. What do we do with sin in our lives? After all, we still face temptation, and we still wrestle with besetting sins, ongoing sins. In verse 12, God puts the matter simply. I will not be with you unless you destroy the sin in your midst. I will not be with you unless you destroy sin. And here is the fourth simple truth in this passage. We must put sin to death. We must put sin to death. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. And it's easiest for us to understand that we need to have various forms of social isolation. We need to keep people apart, stay in our homes, so that we don't risk getting sick from other people. Now imagine a more severe pandemic where we were told that someone who is sick, we had to burn all their house and all their possessions so that no one else got sick from that stuff. We would understand that, that we had to burn someone's possessions because they were contagious. But sin is a far more serious sickness. Coronavirus is a threat to our bodies, but sin can kill our souls. If we tolerate sin, we risk God not being with us. And yet to hear about all of Achan's possessions being destroyed alongside him is almost unfathomable for us because we don't take sin as seriously as we ought to. And this isn't just an Old Testament worry. Jesus pays the price of, Je of his followers' sins on the cross. But he still warns them in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Put your sin to death. Flee temptation. 
Cut off your hand if you have to, to avoid sin. I was working on cars with a friend and he asked me to look something up for him on my phone. And I asked, what happened to your iPhone? Expecting to hear that he had dropped it or something. But he was totally honest with me. He said, it was a gateway to porn, so I'm using this phone now. And he pulled out an old brick phone out of his pocket. If more Christians took sin seriously, I think we'd see a lot more Christians using brick phones. Maybe the temptation isn't pornography. Maybe it's gossiping on Facebook or coveting what you see to Instagram. Put it to death. Jesus says even living without a smartphone is better than winding up in hell. Put your sin to death. So how do we deal with our sin in practical terms? Well, Joshua gives us a clear answer in verse 19. He says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Don't hide it from me. Joshua says, confess your sins. Make a full confession. And the same applies to us. You need to confess your sin to another Christian. Make a full confession. Don't hide anything. Do you have someone that you can be totally honest with? You need to have someone who can come alongside you, who can challenge you like Joshua, who will say, my son, give glory to God and tell me what you have done. This is part of the reason why Christian fellowship is so important. Being totally honest about our struggles requires vulnerability that needs, and that needs a foundation in real friendship. And so building up Christian fellowship, building up relationships is pivotal to being able to confess our sin and to be challenged by someone who will come alongside us. And Joshua says, give glory to God. See, every sin is a failure to worship God rightly. In stealing, Achan is failing to give thanks to God for what God had given to him and instead looking for what he could take for himself. And the same truth applies to us. In every sin, we are failing in one way or another to worship God as we ought to. So how do you deal with sin in practical terms? Confess your sin to a fellow Christian and lean into worship. Sin starts with us. And if we don't resist temptation, it grows quickly. It brings trouble on ourselves and on others. So put sin to death. Destroy it. Eradicate it. Drive it out. Flee to the cross where Jesus, our representative, died on our behalf. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, there are so many temptations that we are confronted with. And there are a variety of besetting sins that I can't even imagine what everyone in this congregation is facing. And yet you know you already know, and yet you nevertheless loved us and sent your son to die for us. And so let us have courage standing on that firm foundation to confess our sin to one another, to deal with our sin, to do the painful work that it may take to put our sin to death. We can't do this by our own power, but thankfully you have sent your spirit to live within us and to make us new. And so by the power of your spirit, Drive sin out of our lives. Give us courage to confess our sin to each other. Give us hearts that delight in true worship that we might resist sin. We ask for these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
who was taken outside the city and put to death for our sin. 